welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to women at the top of their respective games. Today I'm joined by Sarah Baxter, Deputy Editor of the Sunday Times. Baxter is a trailblazer in journalism, working across a series of different beats. She was political editor of the New Statesman before becoming Washington correspondent for the Sunday Times, and she is now a weekly columnist at the Sunday Times as well as being deputy editor. Now, Sarah, many thanks for joining us today. And full disclosure, we first met at the Cambridge Union in a debate where you beat my team. Hooray! <laughs> and we were discussing the future of social media and whether I think it should be... It was a good thing lots of people get their news that way. I was quite pessimistic and you were quite optimistic. So hopefully this is going to be a more optimistic podcast by having you on. Well, one of the things is I just love people getting news from all sorts, every source of information. I would hate to curtail almost anything. Exactly. So I think for listeners, I thought to begin with, we could lay out a bit about your background and your journey into the newspaper industry. Obviously, right now you have your have your very impressive title. But before that, you studied at Oxford, and then went on to work in publishing briefly. Am I right? I did. Yes. I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I knew I loved politics. So I'd studied history, but I was always obsessed with current affairs. And I like to think that it was because I grew up as a young girl, briefly. I spent three years in Montgomery, Alabama, which is now a total backwater, but at the time was the centre of the civil rights struggle. And I think it gave me an appetite for just sort of being surrounded by things going off, you know great events of our day. I was only a little, of course, but it sort of sunk in a bit. So, yes, after Oxford, I had no idea what to do, and I sort of ended up getting a job in publishing. Actually, my first job was at Penguin, writing copy, writing advertising blurbs. You know, a brilliant book by a marvellous author, (laughs) that sort of thing. Always good. And... uh, But then I saw a job came up at Virago, which was a very pioneering feminist publisher, and I thought, oh, that's more up my street. That would take me closer to the current affairs beat that I love and I moved over there but after a while I realised that publishing was probably not the right place for me although I love books and uh, started to think about how I could get into journalism. And that was quite successful for A because soon enough you were political editor at the New Statesman. How did you go from publishing to having what is obviously a very uh, competitive role? I think I didn't quite realise how lucky I was, but also Virago, for all that I was sort of, you know, I was on the publicity side, I I wasn't that senior, but I met a lot of people and they didn't ease my way in, but I think it was, I think I was sort of vaguely known on the left. And then I went and worked for Time Out and Time Out gave me a great sort of canvas, fantastic place for young people to start writing about any subject that interests them including politics, including the politics of London, sort of to end days of the GLC and, you know, things were happening. And so I think that combination of Virago and Time Out somehow, mysteriously, because I hadn't thought of it, caught the eye of the New Statesman and they approached me. So that's, that was pretty jammy. scenario. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah, we could all do with that. And then... <laughs> Back in that in that period of time, so we're talking during the 90s, early 90s, when the press gallery, I think it's safe to say, and also just the House of Commons, I don't think it could be described as female-dominated. No, well, let's put it this way. I started to work in the lobby before the Blair's Babes came in on um, quotas, and the very fact that they were called Blair's Babes tells you all you need to know. So, yeah, um, women in... Both women MPs 
and women journalists in Parliament were pretty rare beasts. On the other hand, there have been some incredibly fantastic women politicians, Barbara Castle, Shirley Williams, and, of course, the indomitable Iron Lady herself, Mrs T. So, so there were great role models, but not big numbers. Did you find at all that... Being in the Commons, and I, I suppose being in a, a minority, if you want to call it that, in terms of your gender, that it was easier to make connections with female MPs as opposed to male MPs, or anything like that, or even the lobby, the female journalists kind of came together, or did gender not come into it in that in that sense? Female journalists didn't come together because we were so few and far between that it just didn't happen. There were women MPs across the aisles who were helpful. And, you know, I really appreciated that. Harriet Harman was always very kind to me. On the other hand, I was sort of this, having worked in feminist publishing, I sort of almost had this idea I didn't want to sort of play the female card. I just wanted to succeed in this bloke's world. And I didn't want to consign myself to any sort of, you know, ghetto group at all, which is what, you know, we were so few, it did feel a bit like that. Yeah, and then I was looking kind of at the parallels between that time and now in terms of the political situation and it was probably a time that Maastricht Treaty you had the Tories tearing themselves apart and I mean when you look at today's politics do you feel like you're stuck in a, a, a groundhog day or definitely I feel I've sort of already lived through this once do I have to live through it twice and uh, yeah I mean the politics of the time was seemed absolutely insane because well you had John Major as Prime Minister, he hadn't, people hadn't really expected him to win, but there still wasn't that sort of feeling that Neil Kinnock was the man for Labour. And of course, as soon as he got in, he was harangued on all sides, and particularly, of course, by the people he called the bastards, who now might be labelled the hard Brexiteers. And I mean, sometimes. Probably still labelled the bastards behind their back. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I think that some of the group, particularly the, you know, the older part of the group, are so used to opposition that they can't get used to the idea that they won. I feel like telling them, wake up, guys, you won, you won the referendum, can we just get on now? And instead of constantly acting like you've been betrayed or that somebody's stitching you up or trying to do you in, it's like, yeah, Brexit won, you know, kudos to you, but stop acting like you somehow lost. And then I was wondering, because there was another parallel I was thinking about, because around the time of John Major, we had all the, you know, the sleaze and all these kind of, oh, yes. it became a party associated with that. And then obviously we've also had the Westminster sleaze scandal of, you know, the past year, which I think is different in, in many ways. But again, it started to see the Commons regarded in a way which wasn't particularly wholesome, a bit backward. And uh, I was wondering if you saw any parallels there. Well, I do. I mean, the thing about the 90s, I mean, Major invited it himself because he delivered this speech in which he said, we're going to go back to basics, <laughs> which was about, you know, decent values, etc. And then every other week, some Tory MP would be emerging from the bushes or something, <laughs> some sordid scandal or, you know, mistresses would emerge. And, you know, anyway, so it was all very entertaining. I have to say it was good fun, at least as the observer, not if you were the person outed. The difference with the 90s, though, and I feel this very acutely, is that there was, on the Labour side, a strong emerging party, and which had a definite vision under Tony Blair. And 
Unfortunately, right now, while the Conservative Party is falling apart, the Labour Party, in my view, is not fit to govern, and certainly not under Jeremy Corbyn. And I think the we're just sort of crying out for some sort of leadership, and the Tories at the moment aren't delivering it, and Labour's worse. Yeah, and I, I noticed in a profile you wrote Tony Blair back when he was, you know, arising, and you, you asked what it would take for Labour to win again when you obviously Tony Blair proved what it would take and to fair you know quite impressive results but when you look at Jeremy Corbyn's Labour what do you think it would take for Labour to win again? Well I'm a little bit worried it wouldn't take that much for them to win again <laughs> I think they Some ought to never Tory shambles yeah or, I think yeah. they ought to work a bit harder for our support I mean I certainly think that under a more moderate leader you know, the kind of people who are popping in to see Mrs May now, you know, whether it would be Yvette Cooper or Hilary Benn or Keir Starmer, maybe. I think Labour would be absolutely rocking the polls at the moment. But it's only one more heave for Corbyn to get in. And the experience of the hard left, and I mean the very hard left, is that once in power, they're very hard to winkle out. And because they start changing the rules of the game, they're no respecters, in my view, of democratic elections. And that's, you know, pretty frightening prospect. And I suppose when, when you were covering Labour and it was the time of their rising, I mean, the idea that someone like Jeremy Corbyn would be Labour leader, I suppose, is something that really entered your mind when you're looking ahead to the future of the Labour Party or do you, do you think there's always been with Labour that chance that obviously the hard left do come back in? Well I was speaking to somebody only just today who was telling me about a, a great professor and writer on Hugh Gateskill and how Gateskill, a former Labour leader, had devoted his life to sort of trying to keep the left out and that has been the ongoing story of the Labour Party. The only thing is is that the centre centre-left, centre-right, call it what you like, has always been confident of being on the winning side. And now it is totally lost so that this, the centre and moderate MPs are having to look over their shoulder for fear of being deselected. And we're not talking about what used to be called the old right of the Labour Party. We're talking about quite moderate centre-left people, but who aren't Corbynistas, fearful of being purged. One of the criticisms we hear of people like Jeremy Corbyn and the people he surrounds himself with, so Andrew Murray, formerly of the Communist Party of Great Britain, is that they just haven't changed their opinions at all. Well, they haven't. <laughs> I can't see any evidence <laughs> that they have, no. A- another aspect. I have on the other hand. <laughs> so they haven't changed their opinions. And then there is also this idea sometimes of misogyny on the left. And I was wondering what, if you viewed that that was a problem that you sometimes get on the left, particularly the hard left, because there have been complaints that among this group there has been, not specifically Corbyn, but there is sometimes a way that the women have been dismissed. And if you look around, the people who are closest to Jeremy Corbyn, it is the same kind of group of men who have been there for you know several decades. Yeah, it's all it's it's what I call bro socialism, and I don't think that you know women are sort of allowed a junior seat at the table, but not a top seat. Yeah, in my view, they pay lip service to feminism, but they're not feminists and they're not supporters of feminism, or at least they don't demonstrate to my mind that they are. And, you know, I don't think it's any accident that the Conservatives have already had two women leaders and could well have, I think, the first ethnic minority leader or possibly even the first gay leader. But 
you know, Labour's pretty slow and conservative, small c, when it comes to those things. And the hard left is worst of all. Yeah, you've managed to actually pregress my next question there, <laughs> which was why, why you thought that was, that we've had those different numbers. Do you think though that is, I mean, we hear a lot from the women in Labour, and we've got things like all women's shortlists. Do you think that, that the fact that we haven't had a female leader yet is a sign that actually things like female shortlists aren't sufficient when you're trying to bring that back because on the conservative side you have women to win which again isn't shortlist but is trying to provide female candidates with the support they might need well i sort of prefer the model of women to win to actual all women shortlist but i think the situation in labor was getting so ridiculous that i can understand why they brought them in and it was amazing and inspiring to see the composition of the commons change and to see all those women MPs join. And I think without the all-women shortlist on the Labour side, you wouldn't necessarily have had the women to win on the Conservative side. So so I'm actually not hostile to them. I just think the fact that it hasn't produced yet a, a woman leader of the Labour Party shows how far there is to go with our institutional support for women to get ahead. Is there anyone in the Labour Party you see now who you think could be the, the future female leader? Well, I think almost, well, there's a whole batch of really smart, intelligent women and almost too many to single out. I mean, I just, you know, where does one stop? But, you know, from both within, you know, from people like Yvette Cooper on one side to possibly even Angela Rayner, if you want someone who's very left wing, who's really come up from, you know, being a mother as a teenager and taught herself along the way, very accomplished. But... I just, I can't believe, in fact, that there are so many talented women in the Labour Party and the Labour Party seems to be in a sort of grip of a sort of personality cult of someone as talentless as Jeremy Corbyn. Moving to America, where you worked as the Washington correspondent, and prior to that, I mean, you've mentioned earlier that you were known in Labour circles, you have been a Labour member previously... No, I'm not much of a joiner. I did actually join the Labour Party once for one year. (laughs) (laughs) Just didn't renew. (laughs) I didn't really renew. I was just not much... Yeah, I'd left university and I was living in West London and Tony Benn was then out of a seat, which also tells you something about left-wing politics and how <laughs> hard left politics and how it goes down with the electorate and used to come along to the local party meetings so I kind of liked that you could see Tony Benn, Caroline Benn etc but then I realised I'm not really one for towing any particular line and I didn't renew. Yeah because you've written about how in one of the US elections you ended up voting for Bush Yes. And at the time, obviously, you probably identified more as a Democrat back in the UK. You associate publications which are more left wing. Yes. I was wondering, which is an example of what you just said. Did you get much of a backlash? Well, I think I think people were very shocked. I think I wrote an article saying I'm a Democrat for Bush in America. My mother's American, so I've also got American citizenship. And Really, you're very much encouraged, if you want to participate in elections or almost anything, to register. So I registered as a Democrat. doesn't mean you have to vote Democrat, but it just means you get certain sort of, I don't know, you can vote in a primary or you can do this and that. So I thought, well, I'll become a registered voter. It it doesn't mean you're a party member in the sort of Labour Party membership or Tory Party membership way. But when it came to it, I really didn't think, you know, we had the war on terror at the time and I and John Kerry was talking about abruptly pulling out of Afghanistan. I thought he was 
you know, not really the right guy. And I suppose I was still quite Blairite and from that sort of liberal interventionist sort of wing. And to me, I thought I'd rather have Bush than Kerry. And in the end, and I've stuck to this ever since, it sort of helped me change my, adapt my politics really. It's like, actually don't vote for who you think you should vote for because, you know, but actually who you really want to represent you. And I thought, you know what, I'd rather have Bush in the White House than Kerry. (laughs) I voted Bush. And that sort of broke with the tradition that I had growing up and in my family. My mother was what you call a yellow dog Democrat from Cleveland. She was, you know, a Democrat family. So it was a bit of a shocker to vote Republican, but I did. And then I suppose when you look at, obviously, your CV, very impressive. But I'm just wondering, because on, with listeners to this podcast, we obviously like to make everyone seem human and I was wondering have you had any particular career disasters or just nightmares at work (laughs) well yeah I had a big career disaster you you kindly let left out of my resume my one year at the observer (laughs) (laughs) I went in as a very you know I was quite quite young went in senior started to run their comment pages and it was a very bad period under a new editor who, of The Observer, who the editor-in-chief at The Guardian regretted having been appointed and was trying to winkle him out. And I kept being tasked with more and more jobs. I was writing leaders, I was running the comment pages, I was editing the review section and the overseeing the arts. And the I was even at one stage writing the diary myself because nobody else seemed to be... Anyway, <laughs> I was getting really the diary, so feel for you there. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and at the end of the year, he was sacked at about... Ten of us were sacked, and I was one of them sacked with him. Luckily, the Sunday Times said they thought I'd be doing a really good job. <laughs> and, uh, so it wasn't, I got a year's money, and I moved to the Sunday Times. It wasn't a complete disaster. But it did only last, I mean, I was only in the job under a year. And I did, I was really furious about being sacked, but I was also almost relieved, because I didn't think I could go on at that pace. <laughs> Yeah, at least the decision was taken out of your hands and, and money. <laughs> yes, yes. But, I, I you know, it, it, it still bugs me today. You kind of never, you know, it's hard to get over that sort of thing. And then I, I guess we'll move to the Sunday Times shortly, but I was just wondering, just one of the, I suppose it's something that you definitely hear in the parliamentary press gallery, but also across the newspaper industry, which is women tend to do very well early on in their careers and I think are often encouraged to do as much as they can pre-having children yes <laughs> because once you have children it's likely that perhaps you'll leave your reporting job or you'll move to kind of a more backseat thing or even if you stay around it's going to be harder for you to climb at the same rate and I was just wondering what your experience had been as a, you know, a mother of two children in fitting motherhood with a, you know a very busy journalist career yeah I was a older mother really okay and I didn't mean to be, but, yeah, actually, things didn't work out that well initially. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to be one of those women who's left it too late. <laughs> and, uh, whereas, in fact, because I, I had no, I had, I'm going to speak very frankly now, so I had a couple of miscarriages, and that was really tough. And I thought, am I overdoing it? And, anyway, I got sent to see a specialist at the London Hospital in the East End, and I said to this doctor I said oh I've had these two miscarriages you know I I work incredibly hard I you know I'm very devoted to my career maybe I'm just suffering from too much stress and he looked at me and he laughed and he said 
you're not suffering from stress. <laughs> and uh, he said, look, there are women here in tower blocks who are suffering from stress, who haven't got any money, who don't know, you know, whose husband is not around, don't, don't know who the father is. He said, you are not stressed. I said, you're right, I'm not stressed. I love my job. <laughs> I really enjoy my work. I'm not that stressed. And actually, sadly, stuff happens, right? And, you know, the the thing that shocked me, I suppose, is I wasn't as in control of my fertility and when things might happen and not happen as I thought I would be. And that was a shock. And But then I went on to have two lovely children. And I've never really complained about stress in that way <laughs> again. <laughs> Frank doctor's advice. <laughs> I guess with that and obviously then balancing motherhood with your career, you're at the Sunday Times, and... In that role, I mean, often with these big newspaper editor jobs, they have been, and it's not to go on about gender, but they have been traditionally, you mainly see male newspaper editors. I think sometimes it can be seen as a, when you are in charge of that high level of stakes publication where you have to make crunch decisions all the time, mm-hmm. I think is often just seen as something which perhaps requires a more aggressive <laughs> attitude than I think sometimes people expect of of certain people in the workplace and I was wondering what your experience have been as editing because I noticed in your column which we uh, obviously very much enjoy you often champion women who I think could be described in some quarters as being a bit difficult I really enjoyed the Liz Trust column you wrote where the Chief Secretary of the Treasury was getting in a lot of trouble because she had dared to say that it was, you know, it wasn't masculine to ask for more money for your, you know, for your department. Had had a go in that sense. And you commended her for taking on male colleagues, concluding that submission gets female MPs nowhere. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> and, uh, is that similar to your own experience, kind of climbing what is a you know, competitive industry where historically it has been more kind of men in their roles? Yeah, I always think that it's not so much that you have to beat the men at their own game. You just have to be honest about what you think and what you say and not hold back. And, I mean, I think I sort of almost accidentally kept getting... No, maybe that sounds wrong because, you know, people, women are always saying they accidentally got this or they were lucky to get that. But actually, I assumed, maybe partly because I'd worked for small organisations, whether it was Virago or the New Statesman, Time Out, that you ought to go and tell the editor what you think. <laughs> or that you ought to talk to a writer about what they were doing and say, well, this doesn't quite work, but maybe if you did this, that would work. That you went into a meeting and you expected to speak up and contribute. And so I just took everything, the, the way I had behaved at small publications, I just took to the Sunday Times. And it was only later that I thought, actually, not everyone does do that. They do hold back, or they're embarrassed, or they don't. But I wasn't trying to be particularly aggressive or even ambitious. I just thought, oh, I'm interested in this, and I want to have my say. And, you know, so the main thing is to be determined and be yourself and not be put off by what you perceive as the... I mean, women are always coming to me and asking their advice, asking advice and saying, oh, but what about confronting sexism and how difficult it is? And I said, well, the main thing is not to worry about it too much. Just go full speed ahead. 
And then when it comes to uh, the future of journalism at The Spectator, we I think we're part of a current affairs magazine boom at the moment. So we have seen subscriptions rise, partly because we have a bankrupting offer at the moment where if you <laughs> I'll plug it nurse Cindy if you if you subscribe for 12 pounds we give you a 20 pound waitress voucher that um, sounds like a good deal yes exactly and we're also at the Sunday <laughs> Times having a reduced subscription offer get get your year's subscription now at a reduced price folks brilliant so that's that's our plugs in but obviously on the newspaper industry we have seen some newspaper circulations fall and I was just wondering if you Lots of people, when it comes to, and it's something we touched on when we met for the first time, when they look at the new markets so the internet, social media, they are pessimistic about the future of journalism. Are you feeling optimistic? I am feeling optimistic. Well, firstly, at the Sunday Times, we have more people paying for our journalism this year than last year. Now, admittedly, that includes the paying digital subscribers, but we have a quarter of a million of those, and that brings in good money. So... We've actually increased our readership from that point of view. So this is, that's actually good news. Now, long-term future of print, who knows, right? At the moment, we still have a very healthy sale. But obviously, like everybody else, I read a lot now digitally, and I love it. And I no doubt the future of the Sunday Times, other newspapers will also be digital. But I'm actually really heartened by the fact that just people want news they can trust and views that they are interested in and people's opinions like yours and you know that and uh, I think the spectator's doing well because it's an enjoyable curated read and I think the Sunday Times is like that as well and I I do think people want that I was very encouraged I've got this young 18 year old friend of my son came around recently and out of the blue he said to me he thought that people of his generation were starting to read newspapers more again because or for the first time because they wanted that sort of news you can trust and I thought my god he's actually you know doing our marketing points you know spouting our marketing points but you know he wasn't he wasn't someone obsessed with current affairs or anything like that it's just that message is sinking through that, that you need quality and not just the rapid fire that of that the internet provides much as I love it and Lynn Barber wrote a piece for The Spectator recently about her exit from The Sunday Times. And she, she was just talking about the industry in general, but she was talking a little bit about how she didn't want to be commissioned for clicks. But she did single you out specifically for praise. Oh, nice. <laughs> Thank you, Lynn. Yes. Um, and basically said she really enjoyed working with you when you were editor of The Sunday Times magazine. And I was just wondering, do you feel like when articles are commissioned now for a publication like the Sunday Times traffic is something that is thought about yeah very much and it should be and what's more Lynn in many ways was a great traffic driver for the Sunday Times she wrote an extraordinary piece about taking an asylum seeker in to live in her house it was one of our best performing articles all year so she doesn't want to have to think about the clicks but we think about them yes and yeah of course we do and then I think just, just to end, this is a question we have asked everyone who's come on this podcast so far, just to give us some you know, tips for our life, which is, what are your best tips to getting a pay rise? Well, be good at your job. Number one, right? I mean, it's an amazing number of people who seem to come out of university and expect to be on big money <laughs> straight away. I mean, my first job was, you know, doing the typing at 25 words per minute and not much pay so 
be good at your job. I think it's not all about asking for a pay rise for what you're doing, looking at the job you want to do, because the best way to get a pay rise is to get promoted. And if you're not getting promoted where you are, you might think about going somewhere else. And that's another good way to get a pay rise. And then your original company looks at you over there and thinks, God, we'd love to have you back, and promotes you, gives you another job higher up the pecking order. So the way not to get a pay rise is to stay at what you're doing, do it well, but don't look like you're in a hurry to go places. Sorted. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you very much for coming on today. Thanks. Thanks for joining us for this podcast today. You can now subscribe to the specific podcast on the iTunes store. If you like it, why not leave a review? It's spectator.co.uk forward slash balls and you will find the link. And thanks to Cindy Yu who produced this podcast. Do join us again soon. Thank you.